You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Michael Lacey from Winning to Wealth. You are listening to the Earn and Invest podcast. This is personal. My father died when I was eight years old and left me with this feeling that I was unlovable. And this played out in my relationships, even in elementary, middle and high school, when it came to the opposite sex. I had this habit of finding girls and women who were unapproachable, emotionally unavailable, or just frankly out of my league. And I would become friends with them. And then when they spurned my romantic intentions, I would stop talking to them. In some ways, I almost played out my relationship with my father to a T, except in this case, I was the one who was leaving. And this followed me even to college. I went to a Big Ten school where athletics were a big deal. And I lived in a dorm where the athletes were the kings and the queens of the school. And I quickly attached myself to a woman who had been dating one of the biggest basketball stars. And we became fast friends because we lived next door to each other. And I also became friends with my resident advisor, who is also very popular with the men of the dorm because they found her attractive and smart. And I became very close friends with these women. And one day I was walking through the student union and sitting in one of the restaurants were a bunch of the football players. And you could see the students around them wanting to go talk to them, just the energy in the room, because these were these big stars. And they were all people who lived right there in my dorm. And as I walked by, all three of the football players looked up and nodded at me. And it was this moment of acceptance. And I realized very quickly, the reason why they did this is they thought I was having a physical relationship with both those women in our dorm, which was nothing close to the truth at all. But I realized very quickly that their perception of me and my own perceptions were frankly very different. And I tucked this knowledge away. And as the years went on, I learned how to form better relationships. I eventually got married and had kids. And as I look back now at my childhood, I realize 
it wasn't like that at all. There were always girls who were interested in me. It's just, I wasn't having it. And then even when I look back at those two women in college, one of them later confided in me that they were always interested in a relationship. It was just that I, I was unapproachable. So looking back at childhood, there were always girls and women who wanted to date me, always people who wanted to befriend me. I was always enough. I always had enough. It just took me three or four decades to realize it. Hey, everybody. I just wanted to remind you that Earn and Invest is part of the Stacking Benjamins family of podcasts. There are three of us in all, Earn and Invest, Stacking Benjamins, and Money with Friends. You guys all know about Earn and Invest already. Stacking Benjamins is one of the funniest podcasts out there, but has amazing interviews and great headlines, which are discussed by Joe and OG. It is one of the original personal finance podcasts and is even better today than it was last year or the year before. Money with Friends is the daily headline podcast done live on Facebook as well as YouTube by Bobby Rebel and Joe Salcihai, as well as they have a number of guest hosts. It covers what's happening today, what our community is feeling about it. It has just an incredibly great vibe. That is at moneywithfriendspodcast.com. You can check out any of these podcasts wherever you listen to podcasts on Apple or Stitcher or Amazon or Spotify. We'd love not only to have you keep listening to Earn and Invest, but check out some of the other podcasts in our family. Michael Lacey is an everyday millennial who, along with his wife, Taylor, paid off $61,000 in debt in 16 months. He started the website and podcast Winning to Wealth in 2018 to help couples save, pay off debt, and invest. Michael came under my radar when I heard a solo episode of his podcast where he talked about activism and financial independence, and it was a really an amazing episode Michael Lacey, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad to be here. I'm really happy to have you on the show. I loved that episode because you seem to me so introspective. And as I got to know more about your story, as I researched this podcast, our interview, you've got a really interesting upbringing. At one point on your podcast, you say that you grew up dirt poor from Monday through Friday, but then on the weekends, you lived a middle-class life. Explain that to me a little bit. Yeah. So, you know, my, my mom got pregnant with me when she was in high school. My, my parents were both in high school and they never got married. And so my dad went off to college. My mom stuck raising the kid. She goes on into a new relationship. She has two more kids with this guy And uh, he unfortunately passes away from cancer. So now my mom's the breadwinner for three kids. And at that point, she was working at McDonald's. She had just gotten like an entry level position at a warehouse. So she wasn't making very much money. So there was a huge struggle there. But on the other side, my father came to Houston, Texas, got a bachelor's degree in communication, became a teacher, got married. So there's a dual income situation on that side of the family. So Monday through Friday, I'm with my mom and it's like this struggle of, you know, are we going to eat three meals a day today? 
But then I would go on the weekends with my dad and we'd go on family vacations and all these things. And so that duality really kind of conflicted me growing up of like, on one hand, money was a source of like pain and torment really. But then on the other hand, it was this great source of joy, right? Like I got all these great things. I got bikes for Christmas from my dad. I got vacations and all the things you think that, you know, kind of validate you as a kid when you're growing up. I got that on the weekend. So that's kind of where that came from. It sounds like this helped grow in you this idea that money equated with things, right? The value of money is the things it could buy you. Absolutely. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Because, you know, again, on one side, I'm Monday through Friday, I'm getting teased for not having the cool shoes and all this stuff. But then all the things that I was getting teased for not having Monday through Friday, I'm getting on the weekends. So it did. It, it really drove home that point of like, okay, when I get money, like this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to buy all the things. I'm going to spend it all. I'm going to you know, go on vacations. I'm going to have the nicest clothes, the newest car. That was my mentality growing up until I got to really college. Now, someone listening to this story could kind of look at your Monday through Friday life and say, boy, that's poor financial modeling. And then look at your weekend life and say, that's much better financial modeling. But it sounds like wealth building wasn't really a part of either of those experiences for you. Right. And looking back on it, that's that's the takeaway is that, you know, you can look at how my mom raised me and go, well, man, that was rough. But then you look at the situation I had on the weekends where my dad was making a good income, but he was spending it all. So we never had conversations about it saving. We never had conversations about investing. I didn't know that you know, debt could have this crippling effect on your ability to build wealth and do all these great things in life. And so the lessons that I got from both were more lessons of what not to, whether that be earning a lower income and struggling that way or earning a higher income and spending the whole thing. And so looking back on it, it, it's kind of weird that you can get the same lesson from lower class and middle class. And so coming out of that childhood, when you were old enough to start making money, what did you do with it? Was it like you spent it the minute you got it? Oh yeah, definitely. So the first thing I did when I got my job was I got a brand new car, a brand new $25,000 car. And, and it didn't seem as bad at first because growing up, like everybody had car payments. All of my friends around me who got jobs, you just went and got a car. Like that's what you did. So it didn't feel like I was doing anything wrong. It just felt like this kind of natural progression in life, right? You, you get the job, you get the car, you start buying things. And so, yeah, that was the first thing. And the interesting thing about that was I actually got a car allowance with that job. So I was in outside sales. And so they were giving me like $450 a month with this car allowance. And so my thought process was, well, look, I'm going to spend like this entire 450 on a brand new car. And, and that's what I did. So instead of going out and getting something maybe two years older that I could pay off in a year or two and then pocket that money and use it for other expenses like oil changes, tires, gas, things like that, I stretched myself so thin on the payments to where all that other stuff had to come from my pocket. And so, yeah, that was one of my bigger financial mistakes was, was getting that car. And so it sounds like the genesis of your debt journey, we mentioned that you paid off $61,000 in debt, the genesis of your debt journey was the very beginning of you starting to make money and have the ability to start buying things. Were you worried about debt at that point in your life? Was there any thought in your brain that said, hmm, 
maybe accruing all this debt is not good. Maybe it's going to trap me. Maybe it's going to take away some of my life's choices. Never. It, it never crossed my mind. So going back a little bit before the car, my introduction to debt was when I got this credit card when I was in college and I got the credit card for emergencies. Again, that goes back to the weekend behavior of my father of, hey, you know, things are going to happen. So you need to be prepared. And instead of teaching me to save cash for that, it was always keep a credit card handy. So I got this credit card. I have this car emergency. My car breaks down. I use the credit card. I think nothing of it. The bill comes every month. I'm paying the bill on time. There's never a struggle there. This is all very normal. And so then when I get the car, again, I'm thinking along those same lines of this is very normal. My parents always have new cars. They pay a car off. They'll trade that car in, get another car payment. Like that's just what we did. We never drove paid off cars for longer than maybe a year or two. So there was never a thought while I was racking up the debt of, you know what, this is going to cause problems later. It was just, this is just what you do when you become an adult. This is hashtag adulting, right? Like this is, this is the thing. Like you get, you know, you go buy the big screen TV, you get a good job, you move into a nicer place, you get a nicer car. Like that's just what you do in your early twenties. Was there any modeling at all for saving talk of retirement, talk of even just putting something away for a rainy day? No, not, not on either side of my family. I mean, and, and this goes back you know, my, my grandparents were a part of that generation that was integrated into public school, right? So there were things that just from their generation that they just didn't even have access to, like knowledge they didn't have access to, to even pass down for us to even know. So these types of conversations were completely foreign to me. It wasn't until our honeymoon where, you know, I get married and I'm like, oh, now we have two car payments. And now I have your credit card debt on top of my credit card debt. And that's when it was like, okay, wait, something doesn't feel right. I didn't know what it was, but I just knew like, this is not really the direction that we want to go in. It's a really interesting part of your story because how we get into trouble is not nearly as good of a story as how we realize we're in trouble and then get out you and passing mentioned your honeymoon, but you had a real episode there in the midst of your honeymoon where you came to some very stark conclusions. Why then? Why there? Yeah. So, I mean, like I said, it was, I guess those conversations had kind of started to fester or those thoughts had started to fester inside of me of like, okay, we're getting married. Like we're combining finances and we just got a bigger house for the two of us that we didn't need. Now you have a new car. I have a new car. You have credit card debt. I have credit card debt. And it was just this combining of finances and realizing that there's not a lot to combine here. Like that, you know, that was the first, that was the genesis of it of like, okay, I don't really know what we're supposed to do. Like now I'm a husband. Now I feel responsible for a household and I have no clue what I'm doing in this area in terms of finances. And so the honeymoon was kind of the crescendo of that because like at that point, like I said, we had just gotten a brand new house. So I knew we were coming home to this, you know, a, a house payment that was higher than it had been. Again, the two cars and all of that. And so I felt the weight of it on the honeymoon. Like as we're, you know, we're in an oceanfront property, we're spending all this money. It's like, okay, but when we go home, we still have these bills. We still have all of these things. And so that's where I kind of got mindful of the effect 
that our spending was having on our lifestyle. And how did Taylor react to this, right? So you were on your honeymoon at the resort, the lap of luxury, (laughs) and her new husband is stressed out. Yeah. So, you know, I played it cool the whole time though. Like I, it, <laughs> <laughs> like I was freaking out, but I didn't say anything. Yeah. You know, like I wasn't, I, you know, like I, I tell the story of like, we would go to dinner and I'd be like, Hey, what are you going to order? And she's like, I think I'm going to get the filet. And I'm like, well, like, but the chicken looks really good. Like, <laughs> you know, so I was doing little stuff like that to where like I would get a water, you know, like little things to just try to save a little bit here and there. And it wasn't until we went on, we were going to go snorkeling. The snorkeling trip gets rained out and we come back and the guy's like, hey, do you want a refund or do you just want to reschedule for later in your vacation? And I chose the refund and she flipped and she was just like, no, we came here to snorkel. And that's where the conversation came of like, okay, look, I just feel like we're spending a lot of money and we need to slow down. And in her mind, it was like, we've built our entire relationship on adventure and food and travel and all of these things. And now you're saying all of that was wrong. Like it wasn't the right thing to do. And so once she kind of understood where I was coming from, once I like sat down and said, look, okay, we've got two car payments when we go home. We just rented a three bedroom house for the two of us. That's like few hundred dollars more than the apartment that we had. Like all of these bills and here we are spending money like we don't have a care in the world. But she kind of started to see, okay, maybe you have a point. And so that was kind of where I guess we kind of realized that something had to change. We still didn't know exactly what it was, but we both kind of had that feeling after that conversation of we've got to start doing things different. I'm going to put a little hard edge on this, but to paraphrase, it sounds like you almost came to the conclusion, hey, we're trying to buy happiness and maybe there's another way. Yeah, I think you can say that because again, like, you know, she kind of grew up middle class, but they were stretched too. So like, this was a whole new world for her of traveling. And although my dad, you know, I would get to travel there, there were like six of us. So we weren't like flying everywhere. We were taking like road trips, like three hours out of town, you know? So like all of going on seven day cruises and flying to Miami and just like all these great destinations, New York and California, this was all very new to both of us. It was things that we wanted to do, but yeah, I I mean, you can say that it was like trying to make up for everything that we felt like we lost in our childhoods. It's a really pivotal point, that point where you realize either on your own or as a couple that something is wrong and needs to change. Your future really depends on what you do next, right? Because it's easy to get frustrated, to give up and fall back into the previous behavior. What did you do at that point that allowed you to move forward and actually improve your situation? So, you know, what's next was really a long process. I started doing the budgeting and, you know, all of that, like while we were on the honeymoon, like as she's taking naps and going to bed, I'm like staying up trying to read, you know, blogs and listen to podcasts and really try to figure out what we needed to do. So by the time we got home, I had a budget ready and it had cut out like everything. I mean, it was an awful budget. So there's like no haircuts for me. She's not getting her nails done. We're never, ever going to go out to eat until we're past this. And when I showed it to her, she was just like, no, this is not. (laughs) Try again, bro. This is not it. So, and 
again, that's one of those things where it's like, I really put my heart and soul into this. Like I've done all this research and I'm trying to get us in a, in a better place. You say you want to be in this better place. This is the key. And she's like, yeah, but not at that expense. And so it wasn't until, so from that point, I had to realize that like she didn't care about the numbers, but what she did care about was me. And so what I had to do was go to her and say, look, we have all of this debt. By that time, I had totaled everything up. It was $61,000. We have all of this debt, and this is how I feel. I feel suffocated. I feel like we're one disaster away from like financial ruin, and this is very stressful for me. And once she saw how it was affecting me, then she said, okay, let's figure out a plan that actually works. Okay, so maybe it's not we never do anything fun, but maybe we go once a month and do something fun or twice a month. And so we really started to kind of chisel out a plan that worked for us in terms of a budget, in terms of a debt payoff plan, in terms of all of those things. And so that was really the next step is just kind of figuring out a plan to get us out of debt as quickly as possible. But that also allowed us to enjoy life. And I've heard you mention in the podcast that there were a few specific people, a few specific brands that helped you dig your way out. Who was most influential on that early path of getting out of debt and managing your finances? You know, I would say like the first person that I found, I mean, obviously when you Google almost anything related to debt, you're going to come across Dave Ramsey. And so I came across uh, a lot of his YouTube videos, came a lot of that stuff and came across some budget templates that he had. And so utilized those. And then that was the first one. And then the next one was Jerem Person Lynn. He actually is the founder of Brass Knuckle Finance. And it was different because I've got Dave Ramsey over here, who's like this super conservative guy that's like always yelling at me. But then I've got Jerem who's another black guy like me, right? He looks like me and he's accomplished this. So there's this like connection there, but he's also calling me out in a language that I understand. So like he's using hip hop lyrics and saying, you know, like, don't be like that guy. Like, you know, he's quoting the lyric, but saying, don't do it that way. And so I just connected deeper on that, but I also love the technical step-by-step process of Dave. So I took a lot from both of those worlds and really merged them together and created our plan. And we're talking about kind of the budgeting debt reduction side, but there's the other side of the equation, which is how much you make. You were also building a career and moving up in the corporate world at this time. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, around that time, our household income was about, it was somewhere around like a hundred to like 110,000. So we were making pretty good money at that point. I want to fast forward because it sounds like you're at that point in life where you're getting it all together And we hear the story a lot about how people evolve when it comes to personal finance. And a lot of them start with people like Dave Ramsey and then end up somewhere in that financial independence retire early realm. For you, that happened right around the birth of your daughter, Allison. Tell us about that. You had some epiphanies. Yeah. So, you know, as my wife is in excruciating labor... I'm sitting there thinking about finance. (laughs) I'm thinking about like, you know, how can we optimize our budget to where I don't have to go back to work? Because what happened was I had two weeks of vacation time and no paternal leave. And my job was like, hey, you're either going to take these two weeks and then you'll be back to work or it's unpaid. 
And I just remember thinking like, once my daughter was born, I I didn't want to leave. Like I didn't want to go back to work. I I wanted to spend as much time with her as possible. I wanted to spend as much time with my wife as possible. I wanted like, I just, I wanted something different and I didn't know exactly what it was, but I was just like, there's gotta be a way that I could maybe work less or work in a different capacity to where I'm around more because my job involved a lot of travel. And so that was really the genesis for me of trying to figure out what this new life would look like where I could spend as much time with my daughter as possible to where I'm not missing her dance recitals when she's older. I'm not missing, you know, any of that kind of stuff that's important to her that I'm there. And so that was really where all of that came from. So first and foremost, big life events. Michael Lacey is certainly thinking about finances. Honeymoon, he's <laughs> concentrating on death. The birth of his daughter, he's thinking about freeing himself from, from the rigors of employment. So financial independence was the answer. Absolutely. I mean, that was, that was the only thing I could think of is like, okay, we still have bills. We still have responsibilities. So how would you not work? And the only thing I could come up with was, hey, I've just got to have enough money to cover my bills. And I didn't, I didn't know that there was some sophisticated method and all these numbers that came with it. I was just like, I got to figure out how to have enough money to where I can cover our bills for as long as our daughter's under our care. When she goes off to college, we'll figure out that phase of life when we figure it out. But like while she's under our care, I want to be as present as she needs me to be. And so that was, again, where all of these thoughts were coming from. So the term is financial independence, retire early or fire. We all buy into financial independence. This idea of retire early has been much ballyhooed lately, but you set a date of 40 at that point. You and your brain said, I want to be out by 40. Why? What, what, what What was the significance of 40 years old? There, honestly, there wasn't a ton of significance uh, other than like, I, when I looked at the calendar, those were my daughter's middle school years and man, middle school can be rough. Like it can be a tough time. And I also knew like, that's when kids get involved in activities and clubs and all of those things. And again, I just wanted to be very present. That was, that was my one thing was just being as present as she would allow me to be as she aged into the teenage years. So it just kind of meshed up with 40 and and we ran with it. I asked Joe Udo the same question, the author of the Retire by 40 blog. He's pretty well known in the fire world. And he kind of said the same thing. He was like, well, I was 38 and I was writing this blog and I figured I could be out of work, hopefully by 40. So it's funny, we (laughs) randomly pick these dates or these ages And a lot of times we don't really have a specific reason. It just kind of sounds good to us. Yep. So you started pursuing financial independence, which brings me to that podcast episode that struck me so of yours. Financial independence can do a lot of things for you. And as you mentioned, one of the big things is you can be present for your family, especially during those hard years you can travel One thing you don't hear people talk about as much is that financial independence gives you a lot of power. And in your case, you connected it to activism. Now, this is right after the George Floyd killing. You were going to eventually be or had been furloughed at work. Tell me about the connection between activism and financial independence, at least how you saw it at that time. Yeah, so it actually, it started with the Ahmaud Arbery murder. And 
at that point I had been laid off. Uh, well, actually by that point I had been furloughed. And so Ahmaud Arbery murder makes national news. And normally when these things happen, you see the video and it affects you like emotionally, mentally. It's very, very draining, especially as a black male, because you, you, you see yourself, you see your nieces and nephews, you see your family members, your friends in those positions. And so it's tough. And usually you have to suppress that and go back to work. Well, with the Ahmad Arbery situation, I was furloughed and I didn't have to go to work the next day. And so I got to sit and just really think about how I felt. And then that morphed into, well, what do you want to do about it? And so I realized like for the first time while I was furloughed that I have all of this time to really affect change. And and I had money to donate. So we donated to the family. That was the first thing we did. We made a donation to the family because what happens in a lot of these cases is people go to trial and the family gets a settlement because they've run out of money because these things get drug out and there's never actually justice. And so that's always been a passion of mine is donating to these things to where the family can see the trial through and actually get justice. So that was the first thing we did. And then it was like, okay, what else can you do? And so I've got all this time. So I start connecting with other friends of mine and we start having these conversations of, hey, let's set up some meetings. Let's let's get the police chief in. Let's let's do this. Let's do that. And it turned into this whole thing. And and with that, I was able to sit back and go, wow, okay, because you're not because you're in this place of financial independence, well, not financial freedom, actually. You have the time, you have the mental energy and you have the resources to really affect change. And so when the George Floyd thing happened, it was like back to back to back. So you have Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, back to back to back like that. And it was heavy. And, and like I said, I'm used to going to work, but I realized like I didn't have to go to work. And so when the George Floyd thing happened, that one was just like the final blow and it just crushed me. I was down for like a couple of days with that one. And so, but again, once I kind of got back on my feet, it was like, okay, what can you do? What are you going to do now? And so that's when I started kind of connecting the dots of, hey, if more middle-class Black people were in this position, how much power and influence could we have? Not just with our money to donate and things like that, but with our time to actually, you know, go meet with potential politicians and say, look, this is, these are the things that we want to see. These are the laws that we're hoping that you'll pass and, and getting them to campaign on those things. And then having the ability to follow up and hold them accountable to those campaign promises. It was really eye-opening for me of like, this might be one of the ways that we can do that. And and I'm not trying to discount any other thing, protesting, anything like that, but this is just another avenue that we can go down. And I think it's super powerful. And so in that episode, that was me just kind of really kind of off the top of my head, just kind of fleshing out like what that would look like and what that feels like. What really struck home to me, too, was this idea that, you know, before you were furloughed, if something like the George Floyd killing happened, you would have to go to work that next day. And coworkers, well-intentioned, would say, how you doing? How are things going? But then you'd be pressured to act like the world was completely normal, like nothing wrong had happened. And pretty much, whether someone said it expressly or not, told to suck it up and move on. And how damaging that was for you in the past. Yeah, absolutely. So 
you know, there, there were plenty of instances where I remember distinctly when the Trayvon Martin situation happened, where this is the first time that this has become like national news. And I just remember going into work the next day and like all of my white coworkers just being like, hey, are you okay? Like, is everything okay? And just being like, yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. But then when I finally spoke up and shared what was wrong with me, like you said, I got told, oh man, like, don't be divisive. Like, don't, there's no place for that here. Focus on your work. Do, you know, do what you're, you're getting paid to do. And what people need to realize, like those types of things affect promotions, that affects salary raises, all of that kind of comes into play around that time. And so for me, it was like, okay, you can, you can be the guy that speaks out about these things at work and you can continually get passed for promotions and raises and all that stuff. Or you can just kind of create this alter ego that just goes to work, does his job, doesn't bother anybody. And then again, use the money and the time that you gain from the promotions and raises to funnel your activism or to fund your activism on the back end. And so that's what I kind of started doing in the later stages of my career. What's striking about your story is the evolution you go through through this whole process. So when we started talking, we were talking about you spending money, accruing debt, equating things with wealth. And then throughout your honeymoon, you start really questioning the debt. You find people like Dave Ramsey. You find Dave Ramsey. You start paying off debt. You have your daughter. You find financial independence. You get furloughed. Your thought process is evolving. And I want to connect to something you said a little bit. You caught yourself. You started saying, I was financially independent. And then you changed and said, I was financially free or was into financial freedom. There's a nuance there. And we evolve as people. And it sounds like you've evolved even in your thinking about financial independence, especially since you've been off of work. How have things changed? Are you still connected to this idea of financial independence and retire by 40? Or have things changed in the way you look at it now? So, so when the pandemic hit, we were pursuing fire. And the goal was, as I said, to spend as much time with my family. Well, once the pandemic hits and like now I'm forced to be home with my family, I really got to thinking of, do I really need a million dollars to be able to spend more time with my family? And the more I dug into that answer, the more I realized that I don't, right? I can, I can use the skills that I've developed over the years to create more passive income streams for myself that will allow me to start being home with my family now. And so as of right now, I don't have any plans to go back to corporate America uh, and work a traditional nine to five. That doesn't mean that that's a permanent decision. It could happen. But as that's the plan for now um, is for me to utilize the skills that I've developed over the years uh, to build income streams that allow me to work from home and be home with my daughter and spend more time with my wife and, and all of those things that I was pursuing fire to do. So I don't have to wait another nine years for that. I'm creating that now. You did a solo episode where you pretty much tell a version of the Mexican fisherman story, right? This idea that successful American businessmen go to a Mexican village, find a guy who's killing it in a few hours by catching lots and lots of fish. They try to convince this guy to automate and build 
so that he can retire. But when they really talk to him, they realize he's living his best life now and that he doesn't have to build all this wealth to do it. And it, it reminds me also of the Cats in the Cradle song, you know, by Harry Chapin. If you remember the song, it's uh, this father is talking about how he was always so busy during his son's childhood, building a life, working, taking care of things for the family, that he was never there when his son wanted to be with him and play with him. And then at some point he gets older and retires and wants to spend time with his son and his son is too busy building that same very life and and isn't around for him. And it sounds like you came to that kind of same conclusion that this goal of financial independence was getting in the way of doing what you wanted financial independence for, which was to spend more time with your family. So why not do it now? So you decided not to go back to work. Was that difficult? Very. Because I'm really good at what I do. And I enjoy it. You know, I'm in sales. I've been in sales since 2010, 2011, 10 years. And I have just had this crazy rise to the top. I mean, when I was eventually laid off, I was one position away from VP of sales. And, you know, I started selling vacation packages in a mall kiosk 10 years ago. And here I am, like I said, 10 years later, one position from VP of sales of a multi-billion dollar corporation. So I found what I was really good at. I loved what I did and it was difficult. It it was difficult. But what's also difficult is dealing with the experiences that I shared earlier of, you know, having these microaggressions where, you know, my hair used to be really long before the the job I got the last time. And I went to an interview with my hair long and it was kind of twisted And there was a comment made by one of the people interviewing me about my hair. So I went and cut it off before my next interview, right? That's my natural hair. But that's something that people who look like me have to think about is whether or not we can wear our hairstyles a certain way to work. And I'm I'm just, I don't, I won't miss that part of it, right? All of the, the other little things that I have to deal with that don't really affect my performance at work. And so on one hand, I'm excited about this new chapter, but on one hand, yeah, it is. It's very bittersweet to, to walk away from something that I loved and something that I was very good at for a long time. And you mentioned having some passive income streams and doing side hustles. How are you finding that lifestyle that is an oft glamorized lifestyle, but can be difficult and has its own aches and pains too? Uh, it's not all sunshine in the side hustle game. Oh, no, it's definitely not. It's a lot of work. And, you know, I'll say this. If you struggle with organization and discipline in your day job, you are going to have a very hard time going into business for yourself, side hustling, and ultimately managing yourself. But it's been a lot of fun. Like, we've tried a lot of different things so far. And it's just kind of, you know, we've just really been toying around with some ideas. Like this weekend, my wife and I sat down and started like going through our house just to see if we could just flip items. Uh, We made 500 bucks in a day. And what was interesting about that was as we're navigating these conversations, people are reaching out to her. Like I'm using the same sales tactics that I built in my career to close these people on these items that we're Mm -hmm. selling out of our house. So that was kind of a rush of like, okay, I know I could do that. I could sell on eBay Built, built skills with the podcast. There's opportunity there to, to further monetize that in different ways. And so there's just all these different options that I'm open to. I think the challenge now is just 
figuring out like, okay, you know that you can monetize like eight different things. Which one are you going to be great at? And how are you going to narrow that down? And so right now, I think that's the challenge is just kind of figuring out where am I going to put the bulk of my focus? So I want to pull this back to my awkward intro. When I look at my life, I realize that I was always enough, but I had to evolve and grow and learn to realize it. And there were multiple steps in between that almost brought me back full circle to where I began. And I see a lot of connection in your journey too, in a sense that enough for you was the relationships and the love and the people and the time. And you had to go through this journey of paying off debt thinking about financial independence, losing your job, and actually letting go a little bit of that financial independence dream, like the Mexican fisherman, to get back to what was really important to you. It begs a little question for me. I mean, should we throw away this idea of financial independence? I almost feel like sometimes it's a false goal that somewhat misleads us. That's, that's a hard one to answer. I, I think it's a worthwhile goal for a lot of people. But I really think you you have to be clear on your values, right? For me, my value is family, right? My value is relationships, as you said. Like I love those things. And even when even when I was going into debt, like I see how all of that was connected then. Because when I bought the car, I didn't I mean, yes, I enjoyed the car, but I was buying the car as really a status symbol to get me included into a certain group of friends. So it was still about the relationships and the people and all of those things. And so I think I think before you can effectively pursue financial independence and what that looks like for you, you have to be clear on what your values are. And I think adjacent to that, when you think about what is enough today for Michael Lacey, does does money really play into that equation anymore? Yeah, it definitely does. Because, and, and I say that because I still have big goals of giving to various organizations. And, you know, my wife has things that she wants to do. Like, I'm very frugal by nature. She is not. So she's kind of in this adjustment phase of like, okay, I know whatever you do, you're going to build it up and you're going to be great. But like, while we're in this time, this is tough for me because she's she's a spender. She's a spender at heart. And so, yeah, it's, it's still important because for her, right? Because she, like, she struggles with mastering frugality to the level that I have. So, yeah, to answer your question, yeah, it's, it's definitely still something that's important. I was about to say, I imagine together in your journey, you guys have evolved. And certainly your thinking has changed over time she, as many partners do, may be evolving at a completely different rate with different concerns and different things that are important to her. Yeah. You know, and that's the thing. I never want to change, really change who she is. Like, you know, that's, that's not my role is to, to get her to see the world from my view. I, I don't want that. But we like, just like we did when we were paying off debt, we have to navigate this season and find a strategy that works for us. And I'm confident we'll do that. I mean, we've done that at every other phase, whether it be paying off debt or whether it be figuring out a plan for financial independence or whether it's right now where we're trying to figure out what this season's going to look like for us. You know, we're, I'm confident that, that we're going to figure it out and we're going to make it work for sure. Now, your daughter, Allison, is what, two years old? Two. Yeah, she's two. 
So these are the years where we really think very much as parents about what we teach our children. Taking all this experience you have, this journey you've gone on, what do you think you're going to tell her about money and happiness? Ooh, that's a good one. I think the thing that I really want her to grasp about money is how much control you can have over your life when you're in a good financial position. Like comparing it to when we were in debt and I was on the honeymoon and I couldn't eat, I didn't even feel comfortable ordering a steak, right? To where now I feel completely confident being away from corporate America for however long I want to, right? And the only difference, none of my core values have changed, none of that. The only difference is I have a lot of liquid assets in the bank. And so I think that's the one thing I want to teach my daughter about money is it just creates options for yourself. And the more you have, the more options you have. And so if you want to live a, a life full of options, then you know accumulate a, at least a, a comfortable amount of money for yourself. And one of those options is that if you're careful with your money, when it's the right time, when it's special, you can go buy that nice expensive steak and enjoy it and not feel guilty or feel like you're putting yourself into debt. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what does life look like for the next 10 years for Michael Lacey? Where do you think you'll go professionally, personally? What do you think is going to change? To be honest, I don't know. And that's kind of the fun of it. It's, it's, it's all so new, right? This all happened in May. We're in July right now. So it's, this is all still very new. I mean, we're in the very early stages of me being a full-time entrepreneur. My goal and my hope is to, again, build up passive income streams for ourselves and continue to live off of that. However, if things change and I need to go back into a corporate position, I, my experience is such that I mean, I don't see any type of problem with me jumping back into my field. I've gotten several phone calls from various competitors over the last few months offering me to come back, and I've just told them to put it on hold for now. So those options are there, and, and I, like, I like the position we're in because we have those options. I have the time and the autonomy to create something that's meaningful for me, but then I also have the accolades and the experience to go back into work if I choose to do that. So for the next 10 years, I'm comfortable saying I don't know what that's going to look like, but I am excited for where we will be in 10 years. The part about that answer I really love is we're really good in personal finance about talking about how investments and savings compound, but we forget to talk about how skills and experience compound. And so if you put the time in, especially in the beginning of your career, those skills and experiences are there for your lifetime and give you an incredible amount of options in the future. Because if you do jump out of the workplace and eventually decide you want to jump back in, you still have something that's worthwhile to people. You still have a skill that people need and that's going to open up a lot of doors. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, just from, you know, building my blog and, and podcasting and all those other things. Like those are skills that I've developed. My skill of speaking, uh, my skill of website building. I've been approached a couple of times from people who asked me to build their website. So just again, developing skills, there's not enough that's said about, like you said, how that can compound over time as well. Well, Michael Lacey, it's been a pleasure talking to you. The 
blog and podcast are Winning to Wealth. If people want to interact with you or find you on the internet, where should they go? Yeah. So I'm Michael Lacey, founder of Winning to Wealth. I am on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube, a blog and podcast at Winning to Wealth. This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I wanted to thank Michael Lacey. That's a wrap. Okay, so it's no secret that I tape my interviews, sometimes weeks, occasionally even a month or two before they air live. And as I was listening to my conversation with Michael Lacey and editing, he really got me thinking about evolution. You see, Michael has evolved. He evolved when he was on his honeymoon and decided that it was time to take care of his debt. He evolved when he had his daughter and he decided that financial independence retire early was something he was interested in. And he evolved when he started looking at financial independence as a means of activism and eventually decided to slow down and take his time, and maybe he didn't have to reach financial independence as quickly. And I connect with what he's saying because I look at how I've evolved over time. If you go back to the beginning of my career, I had no interest in money or finance. I just wanted to be a doctor. And that was the thing that was most on my mind. And I spent certainly my childhood and early adulthood, getting to that goal. But of course, the problem with evolving is that you don't stop. And if you reach your goals, in my case, becoming a doctor, you continuously evolve and move beyond. In my case, I evolved to realizing that maybe being a physician was not the way I was going to spend the rest of my time and came to personal finance and discovered financial independence and retire early and really delved deeply into, I'd almost call this the field of study, personal finance, my money, how to manage my money, how I was going to have that money support me for the rest of my life. But again, That's the problem with evolving is you don't just stop. And when I started to realize how to manage my money and I developed the vocabulary and understanding of what smart personal finance is, it stopped losing its purpose and meaning. It became less of my identity. And the funny thing as of recently is in many ways I've evolved away from the money conversation. It's not that personal finance isn't interesting to me. It's not that earn and invest is still a podcast about what we do with our money and why. It's just I've evolved in my interest in understanding about money and its importance. At some point, you figure out how to manage your money. You figure out how to invest. You figure out how to manage your budget. And once you do that, the mental processes move on. And I've certainly come to this place where in the evolution of my thinking about life and money, I'm thinking a lot more now about life. So I've built up that powder keg. I've figured out how to manage my finances. But what do I do now with myself? 
What is the meaning of my life and my purpose and identity now that I've managed the money thing? Where to go to next? And I think you'll see the themes play out in the Earn and Invest podcast. We started as the What's Up Next podcast, and the reason why was this idea that we were having next-level financial conversations. Yes, you already learned how to manage and budget, and you already learned the basics of personal finance, so what comes next? And that really fits with where my life has evolved to. What to do now? What is that personal finance class 202? What is that conversation we're having that really goes beyond the money and gets to the deeper questions? How do I spend my time? What does it matter? What projects should I get involved with and why? How am I changing and impacting this world? These are all questions that become progressively relevant, as I think they have for Michael Lacey as you listen to his story. He is evolving, and we are evolving as a community. So yes, when you hit play and listen to the Earn and Invest podcast, you will still learn and hear about how to invest and how to start businesses, and how to budget, and what is financial independence. But you're also going to hear a lot more. You're going to hear us talking about how we are growing as people, and then also growing as a community, and hopefully how we're tackling some of these more deeply difficult questions. Because at some point, you'll figure out your money. At some point, you'll have a plan set forward that you will put on autopilot, and that will hopefully create the wealth that will sustain you. But the harder, deeper struggle then is how do you spend the rest of your life? I struggle with it. I think Michael Lacey struggles with it. I think we all do. So why don't we continue the conversation here? And maybe, just maybe, we can struggle together. Thank cool. you, sir. That was fun. That was fun. That I, that was probably one of my favorite interviews. Oh, excellent. That's actually, thank you, because that's a wonderful compliment. I podcast for lots of different reasons, but mostly because it's a passion. I don't do it to make money. I don't do it to, yeah. you know, it's it's actually a big part of my post stepping away from work life. Like, how do yeah. I find connection in the world? So a big joy for me is when I interview someone and, you know, people get stressed out about being on podcasting. So when they come out of it smiling, like that was a good conversation. I feel very good about it. So thank yeah, you for no. saying that. I can tell you put I can always tell when someone put the time in and actually like dug in and created thoughtful questions versus when it's like questions that you've asked like every guest before me. Um, and so I can tell that you did your work and like I said it's, it's a lot of fun you know to, to answer those questions and to really think about it. Some of those things I hadn't really thought about yet so it's good to I'm glad you asked me. Yeah, no, it, to me it's really important cuz I don't want to the last thing I want to do is create an episode that just is 
boring or isn't individualized, right? Because I see, and this is the great thing about doing what we do, I think, is like when I see something like your episode that I listened to, I said, okay, there's something here. There's a real story. And I would be fairly remiss if I didn't like find that story. So, (laughs) you know, I thought the story might be, let's really talk about activism and financial independence. But when I really looked into everything, I found also a very deep, rich story about someone who's evolved. And I connected to that in lots of ways in my own life, in many different ways, financially, personally. But I just, to me, if I can't look for those connections and bring out those stories, then I'm I'm useless. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.